anyway, thank you very much, please. Uh, and I just want you to know tomorrow morning I'll be out in the lobby selling my jams and jellies uh, as well. So I uh, we hope you'll come back. And, um, by the way, I have to tell you, I've read uh, Ralph's book, and it's wonderful. Uh, highly recommended. Um, three Virginians. Um, extraordinary chapter in American history and the, the history of the presidency and uh, 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 illustrative of, um, of the dangers of, of putting too, too much confidence in what, what people uh, profess to be their uh, bedrock principles. Um, I don't mean that cynically. Uh, the fact is that these three Virginians were uh, neighbors. I mean, it was almost as if, imagine if a president from Grand Rapids was followed by a president from Ada, was followed by a president from Saugatuck. Um, actually, if you can get your arms around the concept of a president from Saugatuck, that might be kind of interesting. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, they were neighbors in more ways than one. I mean, they, they were really, in effect, joined at the hip. These were uh, three men. Uh, who had shared the same historical experiences and in many ways the same philosophical uh, gestation. Uh, they were all Jeffersonians, beginning with their namesake, uh, and then, of course, Madison and, uh, and Monroe. They were, uh, in the modern, uh, I suppose, lingo, uh, they were strict constructionists. Uh, they had profound uh, suspicion of big government and of executive overreaching. Uh, remember, uh, the American party system had been defined by Jefferson's disagreement with Hamilton uh, over the nature of the American government, the nature of the American presidency, uh, the agrarian versus the commercial uh, outlook for America, uh, and our relationship with France, uh, revolutionary France versus England. So um, they're really, uh, you know, Jefferson is a defining figure. Uh, and Madison and Monroe have traditionally languished to some degree in his shadow, as they did even uh, in, in his lifetime. But hopefully you'll agree by the time we're done that each of them is, is a, a little bit more interesting uh, and, and more surprising than perhaps uh, the textbooks uh, have suggested. Uh, in, in, in one sense, at least, they were very contemporary figures. Um, many of you think of negative campaigning as a relatively recent innovation. Uh, same thing with media bias. Uh, well, think again. Both have been part of the American political scene since the earliest days of the Republic. Uh, to Thomas Jefferson, uh, what he liked to call the Revolution of 1800, was nothing less than the rescue of popular government from aristocratic subversion. Such views uh, have a melodramatic ring until one reads the wild predictions made by critics uh, who denounced Jefferson as the infidel of Monticello. Consider the charges leveled by one Connecticut newspaper at the then Vice President of the United States. Should Jefferson defeat John Adams? Uh, it shrieked, quote, unrestrained by law or the fear of punishment, neighbors will become enemies of neighbors, brothers of brothers, fathers of sons, and sons of their fathers. Murder, robbery, rape, adultery, and incest will all be openly taught and practiced. The air will be rent with the cries of the distressed, the soil will be soaked with blood, and the nation black with crimes. That wouldn't fit in a 30-second uh, spot today, but you get, the, you get the impression. Was Jefferson mentally prepared for such assaults? 
No man will ever bring out of the presidency the reputation which carries him into it, he once observed ruefully. That's just one of the shrewd and quotable observations which have helped to keep his memory green. The paradoxical Jefferson wrote and preserved for posterity thousands of letters while concealing his innermost self from prying contemporaries and inquisitive historians alike. More than a century ago, Henry Adams famously described the challenge that confronted anyone trying to understand Thomas Jefferson. Almost every other American statesman might be described in a parenthesis, wrote Adams. A few broad strokes of the brush would paint the portraits of all the early presidents with this exception. But Jefferson could be painted only by touch with a fine pencil and the perfection of the likeness depended upon the shifting and uncertain flicker of its semi-transparent shadows. A very elusive figure indeed, and to our eyes, in many ways, a very contradictory one. Uh, he doesn't fit in any pigeonhole. Uh, there is no doubt he was an aristocrat uh, who lived atop a mountain, uh, and yet he considered himself a friend to man, and very much a man of the people. He once said he had seen no evidence that men's honesty increased with their riches. He was a great champion of free speech, who uh, once remarked, the man who fears no truth, who fears no truths has nothing to fear from lies. This did not, however, mean that he was insensitive to the scandalous rumor-mongering that filled the gutter press of his day, and no small amount of which was directed at him. At one point, Jefferson declared the most truthful part of newspapers to be their advertisements. <laughs> What's more, he said, the man who reads nothing at all is better educated than the man who reads nothing but newspapers. Well, then you have the fact that he uh, shared the uh, uh, general distrust of early America toward political factions. If I could not go to heaven but with a party, he once wrote, I would not go there at all. And yet, he became, in effect, America's first political boss, with the help from Madison and Monroe. He was equally suspicious of political ambition. Whenever a man has cast a longing eye on offices, said Jefferson, a rottenness begins in his conduct. And yet he would, as we all know, fill numerous offices. He was trained in, uh, in the law as a young man by the great Virginia warrior George uh, Wythe, and yet he had no illusions about that talkative profession. Were we to act but in cases where no contrary opinion of a lawyer can be had, he said, we should never act. Um, and of course, he had fascinating, we think of Jefferson as a great liberator of the spirit, a man who is profoundly ahead of his time in the spaciousness of his vision about human possibility. Um, when he talked about a natural aristocracy of talent and virtue that was in many ways a radical uh, viewpoint, uh, demolishing heredity and primogeniture and all of these uh, uh, leftovers, if you will, from a royal or aristocratic society. Um, he was, uh, as we all know, a polymath. Um, he was a, a much more of a natural scientist than he was a political scientist. Um, he, he was, in some ways, ahead of his time. He believed, for example, that the American Indian 
was intellectually the equal of the white man. Um, he was uh, very much a man of his time, on the other hand, in his attitudes about the African American and, in many ways, women. Uh, he uh, enjoyed women, he enjoyed their company, but he tended to look upon them, uh, in many ways, as ornaments to society, um, with one very important exception. What really mattered most, uh, his own daughter. Um, this is what he, um, this is the uh, regiment that he prescribed for Martha Jefferson, 8 to 10 o'clock every day, practicing music, 10 to 1 o'clock, dance one day, draw another, 1 to 2, draw on the day you dance, and write the letter the next, 3 to 4, read French, 4 to 5, exercise yourself in music till bedtime, read English, write, etc. <clears throat> in those days before women pursued careers, let alone political careers of their own, Jefferson had his own reasons for urging such a rigorous schedule on Martha. Combining his gift for mathematics with his insight into human nature, the future president calculated the odds at 1 in 14 that his daughter would marry, in his words, a blockhead. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Shortly before noon on March 4, 1801, the president-elect of the United States departed the Capitol Hill boarding house known as Conrad and McMunn's, where he occupied the lowest seat at the dinner table. Dispensing with horse-drawn carriages, Thomas Jefferson walked up New Jersey Avenue to the site of his inauguration as the nation's third president and the first to be chosen from the political opposition. And that, again, we take for granted today, but it's an extraordinary thing in the world of 1800. It was remarkable enough in 1796, 1797, that the Republic survived George Washington. That was the first test. And then a man without Washington's charisma, without his uh, uh, unique status and standing and clout, uh, i.e. John Adams, uh, could govern, however tumultuously, for four years. In many ways, a much greater test was posed in 1800. Could there be a peaceful transfer of authority from one political party to the next? And that's what makes the revolution of 1800 revolutionary. Uh, his predecessor was nowhere to be seen that morning since uh, John Adams had boarded a pre-dawn coach for the first leg of his long journey back to Quincy. This was to be a family habit, as you know. John Quincy Adams boycotted Andrew Jackson's um, inauguration uh, in 1829. The new president's inaugural address was heard by few in the Senate chamber. <laughs> There's a reason the State of the Union address for more than 100 years was not delivered by the president. It's, it was written by the president and delivered by a clerk, first in the House of Representatives and then in the Senate. Um, that's not what Washington and Adams had done. They had delivered it in person. Jefferson uh, did stop that custom, and it's a, a testament to, to, I suppose, the, the uh, um, status that Jefferson enjoyed that for more than 100 years um, his custom prevailed. Uh, there were two reasons. The stated reason was that he thought it was uh, smacked too much of royal um, 
affectation for the president to uh, to be taken in a coach to uh, Congress to stand there and deliver, in effect, the speech from the throne. Um, the real reason was Jefferson hated public speaking, and he spoke in such a soft voice um, that people who were there for the inaugural address said he couldn't be heard beyond the second row. In any event, the address was read, if not heard, by multitudes who were eager for any sign of radical change. They looked in vain. Jefferson extolled state governments, public economy, freedom of religion and the press, the last a none too thinly veiled reference to the hated Alien and Sedition Acts, whose victims he was quick to pardon. Beyond this, the new president sounded notes of reconciliation. We have been called by different names brethren of the same principle, he declared. We are all Republicans. We are all Federalists. Much less startling was his closing passage in which he called for, quote, a wise and frugal government which shall restrain men from envying one another, which shall leave them otherwise free to regulate their own pursuits of industry and improvement, and shall not take from the mouth of labor the bread it has earned. This is the sum of good government. That's the Jefferson credo, uh, as close to what we would call today libertarianism as any American president uh, ever. Um, and it wasn't just words. Uh, Jefferson absolutely believed that his election represented a mandate for profound change. A lot of that was stylistic as well as uh, legislative or, or, other, or, or, or substantive. Um, there are wonderful accounts in which a shocked British minister to the United States uh, recounts calling on the president at the White House, and Jefferson opened the door himself. Jefferson, Jefferson would, open, would answer the White House door, um, and um, he was wearing uh, apparently a, a somewhat soiled uh, day coat, and carpet slippers. Uh, Needless to say, he, he wasn't interested in impressing the British minister, and he did not. Um, <laughs> he also uh, did something rather radical. He, uh, he was the first president to shake hands. Um, a small thing now, but it wasn't seen as a small thing then. Remember, Washington and Adams, and this whole generation, we were all offshoots of uh, Great Britain. Um, and uh, the presidency was a kind of sort of democratic monarchy. Uh, the emphasis monarchy under Washington and Adams and um, uh, democratic, certainly under Jefferson. Among his earliest initiatives was the abolition of the hated whiskey tax and the closing of embassies in Lisbon, Berlin, and The Hague. He cut military spending 50%. The army was reduced to 3,000 men. All this in line with his credo, if we can prevent the government from wasting the labors of the people under the pretense of taking care of them, they must be happy. Well, so much for consistency. Because no mind in American political history better illustrates the U-turns of which the politician is capable. Among the principles for which Jefferson had staged his revolution was a fervent attachment to liberty and a corresponding distrust of presidential aggrandizement. In modern parlance, he was the strictest of constructionists. But he was also a nationalist, a patriot, 
and a visionary, and yes, a bit of a chauvinist, who imagined a continental United States as the fulfillment of destiny, what he called an empire of liberty. At the start of Jefferson's presidency in 1801, two out of every three Americans lived within 50 miles of the ocean. Their forebears had crossed. Only four roads crossed the Appalachians. Beyond the Mississippi lay a vast, unexplored domain extending from the Gulf of Mexico to the frozen wastes of British North America, Canada. No sooner was this huge area ceded to Napoleon's France by Spain than Jefferson set his sights on the city of New Orleans, through which almost half of um, uh, all the uh, commercial traffic affecting the United States even then passed. He didn't want to buy Louisiana. He wanted to buy New Orleans. Remember that. Congress, reluctantly, authorized the expenditure of up to $2 million with which to purchase New Orleans and modern-day Florida, another Spanish territory that everyone regarded as a, a total wasteland, um, sort of the Alaska of its, of its day. In April 1803, the long-stalled talks took a surprising turn. With England and France at war, Napoleon needed cash. So he astonished the American negotiators by offering to sell not a single river port on the Mississippi, but the entire Louisiana Territory for $15 million uh, cash on the barrelhead. In exchange for 828,000 square miles, doubling the size of the United States, by the way, at three cents an acre, and a virtual hammerlock on the rest of the continent, Jefferson readily dismissed his strict constructionist views of the Constitution as, in his words, so many metaphysical subtleties. <laughs> Tell a modern president, next time you want to, uh, you know, sort of read my lips. So many metaphysical subtleties. Not everyone welcomed the deal. According to the Boston Columbian Sentinel, Louisiana was nothing but, quote, a great waste, a wilderness unpeopled with any beings except wolves and wandering Indians. It was purchased, said the newspaper, so that lordly Virginia could continue to dominate the Union and depress New England land values. Well, uh, it, was the, it was actually purchased for more personal reasons than that. As I said earlier, Jefferson was much more of a scientist than he was a political scientist. Uh, that is no exaggeration. While he was serving as minister uh, from the United States to France in the 1780s, uh, the future president published the only book he ever wrote called Notes on the State of Virginia. Um, I recommend it to you. It's extraordinary. A uh, comprehensive description of the flora and fauna of the Commonwealth in which he grew up. The book provoked heated debate among scientists over the size of European versus American animals. Letting his patriotism get the best of his science, Jefferson insisted that the American moose stood so tall that a reindeer could walk under his belly. In 1787, he sent a French naturalist the skin, bones, and skeleton of a moose, along with regrets that the creature had lost so much hair on its transatlantic voyage. Thomas Jefferson never traveled beyond the Blue Ridge Mountains. Remarkable for this man we associate with the West and Western expansion. Uh, he could see 
uh, tantalizing the, those mountains from Monticello, but he never penetrated them. Uh, and he is a man, in some ways, one key, I think, to understanding Jefferson is he's not just bookish. You know, lots of, lots of people love to read. Jefferson lived in his books in ways that sometimes uh, gives his writings a certain kind of artificiality uh, or cloistered uh, sense. For example, from the books in his library at Monticello, he gathered that the trans-Mississippi region was filled with active volcanoes, salt mountains a mile long, prehistoric animals, and blue-eyed Indians who spoke Welsh. <laughs> to test such reports, he had long dreamed of sending explorers up the Mississippi to the Missouri, and then west to what were then called the Stony, not Rocky, mountains, and down some westward-flowing river to the Pacific. Jefferson announced the deal on July 4th, brilliant packaging, July 4th, 1803, the 26th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. The very next day, Meriwether Lewis left Washington for Pittsburgh and the first stage of his epic journey. With a budget of $2,500 cadged from Congress, including $695 for Indian presents, the 44-man Corps Discovery, led by Lewis and Clark, would spend the next 28 months exploring the trackless west. Along the way, they would encounter countless plant and animal species unknown to Easterners, as well as Native Americans for whom the Great Plains, Rocky Mountains, and Pacific Northwest were not virgin territory awaiting discovery, but their homeland. Buying Louisiana violated Jefferson's strict constructionist principles. Sending Lewis and Clark on their uh, voyage of discovery uh, did likewise. Uh, in both cases, Jefferson's constitutional principles were trumped by his insatiable curiosity. However, that is not the case for his other violation of, of strict constructionism. In his second term, it's amazing, you know, Jefferson's on Mount Rushmore. Uh, we all can quote something from Jefferson. Uh, he's in the national attic, intellectual and otherwise. Um, and yet his second term was a disaster. Very few people would disagree with that. Now remember, he'd cut the army, he'd cut the navy. Um, he, he left the country almost defenseless. And um, when the European war threatened to engulf uh, the United States, um, the weapons he chose to fight with were economic, and they turned out very much to be a double-edged sword. Um, on his own, he imposed uh, the embargo which in effect said, we will not do business with the warring powers in Europe. Now, not for the, first, not for the last time, this exaggerated the uh, necessity that Europe had for American goods. It wound up, in fact, hurting Americans, and particularly New Englanders, because after all, they were the maritime economy. Thousands of sailors were thrown out of work and all of the industries, the ripple effect was enormous. And in fact, it began talk of secession uh, within New England that would reach a, a climax uh, during the, uh, the War of 1812. 
Well, of course, the embargo, uh, humans being human, they're very ingenious, and they found all sorts of ways to get around Jefferson's embargo. And, uh, and that forced the president to become more and more um, strict, uh, if you will, uh, overreaching, uh, if you will, in trying to enforce the embargo. So it's a great irony that this man who took office in 1801 uh, proclaiming the best government is the least government should find himself before he left office uh, eager to leave office uh, enforcing uh, a breathtaking assertion of executive authority of the sort that, that Washington and Adams uh, would never have, uh, have, have countenanced. Uh, and the, the good news for him was that he was uh, to be succeeded by his, his good friend and neighbor and intellectual soulmate, James Madison. Now, we think of Madison today, if we think of him at all, uh, we tend to associate him with the national humiliation uh, in 1814 of having our national capital, in effect, burned to the ground. Um, the fact that Madison wasn't there when the British arrived, the fact that the British were able to get there in the first place, um, and I, in many ways it stained his, his reputation. Um, it's very interesting because one of the things we've been talking about all week is how presidential reputations evolve, how um, with no new information we have new perspective based upon intervening events and, uh, if you will, new conventional thinking. It's a very interesting thing. If you look at how James Madison fought the War of 1812, first of all, the conventional notion is he didn't want to fight it, but he was too weak to prevent the war hawks, the people like Henry Clay and others, um, who confidently believed that in the first weeks of the war we would take Canada and um, we would thrash the British. Well, needless to say, uh, neither eventuality prevailed. Uh, nevertheless, Madison is blamed for not preventing uh, this war, which was largely over you know, the, the fact that the British were impressing U.S. sailors and, um, and, and that they were imposing their own commercial restrictions on, uh, on the, in the United States. It was, in effect, a second revolution. It was a second war for independence. Had we lost the War of 1812, uh, there is some question as to uh, whether the United States would have survived. Um, the other thing that Madison suffers from in many ways in, in, um, in posterity as in life was by comparison with his wife. Um, everyone knows Dolly Madison. Um, she's colorful, vivacious, uh, a great hostess. Uh, the old wives' tale is that she introduced ice cream. Uh, to the United States, for which she, we'd all be grateful. Um, and, um, and, of course, we all know what she did. She, was, she stayed behind in the White House as the British, having defeated a ragtag American army at Bladensburg, marched into Washington. Um, just one step ahead of them really was the First Lady, who stayed behind to famously cut the portrait of George Washington from its frame in the East Room, roll it up, uh, along with a few other items, and uh, and basically get out of town just ahead of the uh, arriving British. Um, so we think of Dolly as, as as displaying the heroism on that occasion, and she didn't know where her husband was. Um, the fact is, he had tried to rally um, uh, the American troops outside Washington for uh, some kind of defense. Um, now. 
Madison was a strict constructionist, and he fought a war on strict constructionist lines. That is to say, he's the only American president to fight a war along strict constructionist lines. What does that mean? Well, he feared domestic taxes almost as much as the red-coated enemy. So he floated $80 million in government bonds to pay for the nation's defense. He privatized the war at sea, uh, promising the spoils of victory to individual captains who took it upon themselves to attack British vessels. Um, it's almost as if the war in Iraq were to be subcontracted to Bill Gates or Warren Buffett. And on the one hand, you have the humiliations of the early, I mean, the, you know, we had a lot of lousy generals, old generals left over from the revolution. And Madison was blamed, as any president would be blamed, for the series of military defeats, culminating, of course, in the burning, the sacking of Washington. On the other hand, uh, the American Navy turned out to be surprisingly effective on the Great Lakes and Lake Champlain, and all those privateers, all those greedy individual captains, uh, turned out to do a number on the, the greatest navy in the world. Here's what has changed about how people look at Madison in the War of 1812. Under James Madison, no one went to jail for criticizing the government. Uh, there was not a single action for libel. The government didn't expand. Uh, civil liberties were not infringed upon. Uh, and in the end, we if we didn't win, we didn't lose. And that was enough. And of course, after the peace treaty was actually agreed to, Andrew Jackson managed to win a famous victory at the Battle of New Orleans. So it's, it's, a, it's a case study in how conventional thinking in one era can be turned on its head because of subsequent events. Uh, in 1962, Irving Brandt, who wrote a six-volume biography of Madison, uh, visited President Kennedy in the White House. And I don't think Kennedy was just indulging in idle flattery. He told Brandt that he thought Madison was the most underrated president in American history. And remember, this was a president who had just been through the Bay of Pigs and who was about to raise very thoughtful questions at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis when encouraged by not only the military, but particularly by the military around him to, as a first resort, uh, undertake a military response to the challenge posed by those um, long-range uh, Soviet missiles that had been installed in Cuba. And it's fascinating to speculate if the ghost of James Madison, or the example of James Madison, the restraint that Madison practiced as described uh, ad nauseum by Irving Brandt, whether that was in fact part of uh, Kennedy's response in the Cuban Missile Crisis. You, you like to think that maybe it was. Two terms for Jefferson, two terms for Madison, um, and then two terms for the third of our Virginia trio, what I'm tempted to call the three amigos from uh, Albemarle County, um, and the most obscure. Uh, James Monroe. Next to the Renaissance genius of Thomas Je uh, Jefferson, or the intellectual 
profundity of Madison. You have to remember, Madison is perhaps the most cerebral of all of our presidents. Um, he actually had a nervous breakdown at Princeton uh, when he was studying as an undergraduate because he, he, he worked so hard. And it was his erudition, his study of governments um, around the world and throughout history that informed the Constitutional Convention. Uh, there's a reason he's called the father of the Constitution. Uh, and on top of everything else, Madison spoke more than anyone else in the convention. And yet somehow, uh, amazingly, he was also able to, to make complete notes, the only really extensive notes of the convention. They were published after his death. Um, so, you know, Madison is that rarity in American politics, a true intellectual, a man of thought, who's called upon to be a man of action. Um, and the debate still rages as to whether he was a better intellectual than he was a, a president. Um, as if you can't be both. Anyway, next to uh, Jefferson and, and Madison, Monroe appears to be a modest man with much to be modest about. <laughs> Historians employ many tools to excavate the past. None is more important than the gift of imagination. So try for a few minutes at least to imagine yourself in James Monroe's America. Uh, more precisely in James Monroe's Washington. Uh, the city is recovering from its uh, sacking at the hands of, uh, of the British. Uh, it has acquired a fresh coat of sophistication, uh, but it's mostly cosmetic, like the whitewash applied to the president's house to obscure the fire marks left by the uh, British when they burned the place in 1814. And that, of course, is where we get the term the White House. Monroe's America is at peace with the world and with itself. The French Revolution is a fading memory. Napoleon is caged up on St. Helena. Perhaps as a result, the Monroe years have traditionally been seen as an uneventful period of transition from the Jeffersonian Republic to the Jacksonian democracy. If you want a recent parallel, think of Dwight Eisenhower. From the, you know, the agony of the 30s, the tumult of the, of the 40s, uh, the chaos and creativity of the 60s, What's what sticks out like a sore thumb, the relatively peaceful, placid, prosperous, gray-suited 50s. Except, if you're going through the chaos or the tumult, the 50s don't look so bad. Likewise with James Monroe. In fact, it's a time of dynamic growth and ceaseless change. In Monroe's first term alone, four new states joined the Union. Indiana, Mississippi, Illinois, and Alabama. And by the way, keep in mind, two of them are northern, two of them are southern. Life sped up for Americans. A steamboat for the first time plied the Mississippi from New Orleans to Cincinnati. New Yorkers began to burrow into the earth, digging the Erie Canal that was to be the making of New York City. Young America moved relentlessly forward, presided over by a symbol of past glory. James Monroe is the last American president to wear a cocked hat. Notwithstanding their earlier differences over the French Revolution, and they were profound. In fact, Matt Monroe had been fired as this country's ambassador to Paris by George Washington because Washington believed he was too sympathetic to the revolutionaries. Uh, for all of that, Monroe, particularly as he got older, shared many attributes 
with, with Washington. Uh, both men, of course, they were Virginians. Um, both men had distinguished themselves in battle. Both were more steady than brilliant. Um, and like Washington, Monroe saw himself as being above party politics. This was made easier by the fact that he presided over essentially a one-party nation. Adding to the parallel, Monroe emulated Washington's far-flung travels, advancing national unity by appearing before his countrymen in his favorite role as venerable patriot. Uh, Monroe, uh, in 1817, paid a visit to Haverhill, Massachusetts, up in the North Shore, uh, not far from the New Hampshire line. Uh, and it just so happened that his visit coincided with that of a visiting circus. Uh, nine-year-old John Greenleaf Whittier was prohibited by his strict Quaker parents from seeing either the president or the traveling show of wild animals. Walking into town the next day, the future poet came under the impression left in the dusty road by an elephant's foot. Naturally, <clears throat> he assumed that it was the imprint of the President of the United States. <laughs> Whittier returned home, happily convinced that he had seen at least the footsteps of the greatest man on earth. In Boston, a city less restrained by Quaker virtue, a crowd of 40,000 people turned out to greet the chief executive. It was that same newspaper I mentioned earlier, the Columbian Sentinel, a Federalist paper, opposition paper, that coined the phrase, the era of good feeling, with which Monroe's presidency was labeled gracefully, if inaccurately. For if there is any era in our history more permeated with bad feelings, it's hard to imagine. Like Andrew Jackson a few years later, or Ronald Reagan in our own time, Monroe's popular appeal mystified the political class. With a degree of vindictiveness rare even for him, Aaron Burr labeled the new president as, quote, naturally dull and stupid, extremely illiterate, indecisive to a degree that would be incredible to one who did not know him. Of course, hypocritical. He has no opinion on any subject and will always be under the government of the worst men. So much for the notion of negative campaigning as a modern invention. It would be fairer to say of Monroe that he was a representative man in an age of genius. He has been called the first ordinary man to reach the presidency. Yet his success in that office, I would argue, did as much to validate the democratic principle as any burst of Jeffersonian eloquence or Madisonian profundity. In his inaugural address, President Monroe celebrated an end to partisan rancor in America. <laughs> this is ironic. His inaugural is the first outdoor inaugural. The reason it was the first in, uh, inaugural outdoor was because the House and the Senate were unable to agree on where to hold the ceremony. <clears throat> At the same time, members of the diplomatic corps boycotted the event, their rigid sense of protocol unreciprocated by the new president or his advisors. Far from being governed by the worst of men, as Burr had suggested, Monroe, like Gerald Ford in our time, was secure enough in himself to surround himself with advisors of more glittering talents and more transparent egos. For example, his appointment of John Quincy Adams as Secretary of State pleased Thomas Jefferson, who knew both men. In Jefferson's words, they were made for each other. Adams has appointed Penn, Monroe has judgment enough for both, and firmness enough to have his judgment control. 
Like many men who have lusted for the presidency once he was there, Monroe suffered at the hands of others who wanted his place while lacking his perspective. His amiability was famously put to the test when his secretary of the treasury, a man from Georgia named William Crawford, rudely challenged him over some federal patronage. A provoked Monroe raised his voice. A violent Crawford raised his cane as if to strike the chief executive. You damned infernal old scoundrel, cried Crawford. Seizing a a pair of fireplace tongs in self-defense, Monroe ordered his secretary of the treasury out of the White House. So much for good feelings. (laughs) We know about this extraordinary encounter because of John Quincy Adams, a front row observer who preserved the Monroe years in the pages of his famous diary. He cannot be said to have been an entirely impartial observer. To Adams, for example, the ambitious Secretary Crawford was, quote, a worm preying upon the vitals of the administration. To their dismay, both Monroe and Adams would discover that a nation without parties was hardly a nation without factions. Monroe might be accorded near unanimity at the polls, but he could not repeal human nature. He was very much a hands-on chief executive, just as we've discovered in retrospect that Dwight Eisenhower, uh, the famous hidden hand theory, uh, was much more engaged in his administration than appeared at the time. Same thing with Monroe. Not a single significant appointment, uh, even within his own department, said Adams, was made without the president's direct involvement. Adams might take credit in the pages of his diary for negotiating Spain's session of Florida. But when the treaty hung in the balance, it was Monroe who took the lead in pressing Congress to approve the deal. And it was Monroe who used his influence to avert Congress from censuring Andrew Jackson after he invaded uh, Spanish territory in 1818. In fact, Monroe himself drafted the diplomatic note to be sent to a protesting Spanish minister. Good reason for that. Monroe was a diplomat. He'd gone to France. Uh, He was Secretary of State. Um, In fact, he was so skillful, uh, during the War of 1812, uh, Madison finally got rid of his incompetent Secretary of War, and he made Monroe both Secretary of State and Secretary of War. In a world still hostile toward popular government, Monroe earned respect for the United States by standing on ceremony. Even within the refined precincts of the White House, however, the old man was sometimes called on to play peacemaker. One evening over dinner, the British minister noted that every time he made a remark, the ambassador of France bit his thumb. Do you bite your thumb at me, sir? demanded the Englishman. I do, shot back his Gallic counterpart. With that, the two diplomats put down their dinnerware and rushed out of the room. They were about to fight a duel with swords in the vestibule of the president's house when Monroe appeared, preventing bloodshed by ordering carriages for both of them. He also had, actually, a rarely glimpsed sense of humor. Um, He held more offices than any other man uh, to be president. So he was thoroughly steeped in the byways uh, and hypocrisies of Washington. Near the end of of a lengthy White House reception, a friend asked the president if he felt tired. Oh, no, answered Monroe. A little flattery will support a man through great fatigue. (laughs) Well, he was flattered indeed in 1820. He won re-election to a second term. Um, In fact, he received every electoral vote but one. No one's ever done it since. Uh, And that was withheld by a stubborn New Hampshire elector named William Plummer, who insisted on voting for John Quincy Adams. 
in part to advertise Adams' claims for 1824, but also to deny the last Virginia president the uh, unanimous acclaim accorded the first. In modern parlance, Plummer might well have said to President Monroe, I knew George Washington. George Washington was a friend of mine, and you're no George Washington. (laughs) His second term would duplicate, however, the trials and anxieties experienced by the father of his country. Washington, after all, had been acclaimed by a nation that could agree on nothing else. Monroe's America was similarly divided as the issue of slavery thrust its way to the forefront of public debate. During his first term, remember, he had those four states that had come into the Union, two northern, two southern. Um, He had presided over what we might call controlled growth, as new states knocked at the door of the Union with perfect symmetry. There was a reason for that. There was an uneasy balance, even then, uh, over the issue of slavery. And since the House of Representatives, as you all know, was a portion on the basis of population, the South increasingly took refuge in the Senate. And that's where every state had the same number of votes. And so as long as southern states came into the Union in perfect symmetry with northern states, then, well, you can do the math. Then came 1820, an intense acrimony over the proposed admission of Missouri as a slave state. Writing to Jefferson, who was retired at Monticello, Monroe said, I have never known a question so menacing to the tranquility and even the continuance of our union as the present one. Personally, he believed that one day an anti-slavery majority would control Congress, and indeed that slavery itself one day would be eliminated. But on his own watch, he was determined to pursue compromise. He saw himself as a man of the whole nation. That said, however reluctantly, it was James Monroe who sanctioned the first restrictions on slavery in America, the famous Missouri Compromise, which basically drew a line all the way to the Pacific and said slavery is not allowed north of this line. There was no shortage of other divisions to harry and perplex the old man in his second term. Henry Clay dismissed. Henry Clay was the perpetually ambitious Speaker of the House uh, who hated not only Monroe, but any president who was president, because that meant Henry Clay couldn't be president. Uh, He dismissed the president as a political irrelevancy. The old president finds himself woefully beset, deserted by all his old friends, obligated to seek new ones. Well, actually, the old president pertained a very youthful ardor for the cause of human liberty, especially in his own hemisphere. Monroe is not a charismatic figure. He's not a colorful figure. He's not a quotable figure. There's not a lot of things about Monroe that have lodged in the national consciousness. One thing, however, is, and that is the Monroe Doctrine. Um, And it is the Monroe Doctrine. Adams drew it up, there's no doubt about it, but it's Monroe uh, who insisted that it happened. In fact, Adams tried to restrain the president Uh, He thought he was abandoning George Washington's traditional policy of isolation uh, from the rest of the world, uh, giving the United States enough time to build up uh, its uh, economy and its military uh, to withstand um, uh, aggression from any other power. Uh, It was Monroe who denounced Bourbon France for trying to suppress liberty in Spain. Monroe who pronounced an anathema on Turkey for denying Greek independence. 
Left to his own devices, Monroe would express solidarity with the hard-pressed Greeks by sending an American minister to Athens. Well, Adams said that was going too far, that such language would take his own country by surprise. He said like a clap of thunder in the night. Why take sides in the quarrels of Europeans, Greek against Turk, Turk against Russian, France against Spain, the Balkans against the world? If we must come to an issue with Europe, said Adams, let us keep it off as long as possible. Well, Adams would tell the Europeans to conduct their own quarrels in their own backyards. Monroe would take it a step further and tell them to leave the Americas unmolested and uncolonized. Remember, South America at this point, Spanish, um, and what was beginning to happen were the colonies, Spanish colonies were beginning to declare their own independence uh, uh, following in the footsteps of the, of the great Yankee uh, Republic to the north. Uh, and this, by and large, is exactly what Monroe proclaimed in his annual message to Congress in December 1823. It had no force at all behind it. The only force behind the Monroe Doctrine was moral force, the superior claims of republicanism with a small r against monarchy, the sovereignty of a free people against the dominion of royal blood and noble pretense. The Monroe Doctrine derived its legitimacy from a rage for liberty that was older than the American Republic itself. While Congress alone held the power to declare war, James Monroe would define the conditions of a just peace. He would raise the standard of non-intervention in such a way and with such conviction that no future president would dare to pull it down. And indeed, back to John F. Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, uh, not the least of the arguments employed by the president against the Soviet Union was the Monroe Doctrine. More than a few observers detected feelings of relief as he came to the end of his second term. He would be 67 years old when he walked out of the White House for the final time, a very old man indeed by the standards of the 19th century. Um, perhaps his weariness reflected a compound of pride, disillusionment, and horror at the ravages of political ambition. For much of his life, Monroe had aspired to the presidency. Like most who have attained that goal, he went out of office both sadder and wiser. And, it must also be said, poorer. The three presidents from Virginia had many things in common. One thing they all wished probably they didn't have in common, they all died impoverished. Um, Thomas Jefferson almost lost Monticello uh, for a number of reasons, including his own extravagance. Um, in the end, the state of Virginia held a lottery to try to save the place. Um, and it, it, you know, it was sold not long after his death, but he died basically penniless. Um, James Madison intended to uh, free his slaves, and uh, in the end, he was unable to do so uh, because he too died in poverty um, for another reason. Uh, Dolly, his uh, he had a stepson. Dolly had been married before she married uh, James. And he was a wastrel and a, and, a, and a drunkard. And he basically went through the Madison estate. And in the end, um, Madison was unable 
to carry out his wishes in terms of freeing his slaves. The saddest case of all, though, I think is Monroe. Monroe, to the end of his life, was petitioning Congress to pay his diplomatic expenses going all the way back to his turn as George Washington's special envoy to Paris during the French Revolution. Um, He was forced to sell his estate in Virginia and to move to New York City to move in with his daughter. And that's where he died. And one other thing that Virginia presidents have in common, he died on the 4th of July, 1831. Jefferson died on the 4th of July, 1826. And Madison could have died on the 4th of July, 1836. His doctors offered to keep him alive until that date. And it tells you something about Madison that he didn't care for the symbolism. Um, So he died a week in advance of uh, the glorious fourth. Um, Madison, Monroe died so poor that um, he he couldn't even be buried in Virginia, in his his native commonwealth. So he was buried in New York uh, for 25 years until uh, the eve of the the Civil War. Uh, A plan was hatched to bury all the Virginia presidents together in the Hollywood Cemetery in Richmond. Well, Mount Vernon turned him down, but uh, and, and and Jefferson stayed at Monticello. But uh, a great state funeral was arranged uh, through the streets of New York and then um, in Virginia. So James Monroe returned to uh, his beloved Virginia, and um, so much for three from Virginia. Questions, comments. Anything surprise you about any of them? Hmm. Yeah. Good question. Um, they were strict constructionists, uh, but they also, um, and, and that was illustrated dramatically the way Madison conducted the war. But even Madison, for example, the Supreme Court, well, we'll go back. Remember the, the famous debate between Hamilton and Jefferson about a bank, about creating a national bank. That's one of the defining moments in the early republic. And indeed, political parties came out of this debate. Um, and Hamilton, in the end, was convinced Washington that a bank was necessary, that the Constitution allowed it. And indeed, the courts, um, including the Supreme Court, uh, agreed. Um, Jefferson let the bank die. Madison, who is Jefferson's disciple, allows a second national bank to be chartered. Um, and it, too, was upheld uh, by the courts. And it's, it's simply a tacit admission that perfect theory runs up against harsh reality, that the United States is no longer simply an agrarian, rural uh, republic, that it's becoming a, a world power, um, a commercial power, and the government is in fact growing and that it needs it needs it needs a, a bank. Um, Jefferson made war on the Supreme Court. In fact, the great irony when he talked about we're all Federalists, we're all Republicans, that lasted about a week uh, because uh, you know it sounded great, but he um, was very upset. You may remember Adams in his last hours as president. Um, signed a whole host of commissions. Uh, he, he appointed a whole host of judges 
Um, John Marshall, the great Chief Justice, was uh, one of the midnight appointments, uh, or almost that late, in the Adams administration. Jefferson wanted to undo them. Um, he was frustrated in his efforts to undo them. So he undertook something that has never happened since, because it was such a disaster. He, he, he encouraged his followers in Congress to impeach a member of the Supreme Court, um, who was, today, um, he would not be on the Supreme Court. He was openly partisan, and, and many believed him to be insane. Um, that, however, was not enough to get him kicked off the court. Uh, and, and Jefferson, ironically, had overplayed his hand. Um, and, 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 and then, of course, you had John Marshall, who was this great Federalist. Um, long after the Federalist Party died, Federalist notions of a strong central government lived on in John Marshall and his court. And uh, the famous Madison v. Marbury case, um, in which basically President Madison uh, was almost an innocent bystander, uh, but in any event, um, it's it's complicated. But what what um, the Chief Justice did two contradictory things. He said, "Yes, uh, these appointments, these late appointments, were illegal, um, and they couldn't take their 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 appointment." But no. The president didn't have the authority to enforce that. Only the court did. And what, what Marshall did in that one decision was basically to elevate the Supreme Court to a level that, frankly, none of the founders had envisioned, a level that was consistent with the other branches of government, a level where basically the court decided what was the law. Uh, and so the great irony is that Jefferson, and Jefferson and John Marshall were cousins. They both lived in Virginia, and they detested each other. <laughs> Hated the ground they walked on. And so you had this great duel. And John Marshall won. And so Madison Monroe and all of his successors, in effect, had to defer to this court that had no authority. They had no troops. They had no police power to enforce their rulings. But it says something about the American people and, uh, and, the, and the Constitution um, that when the court ruled as it did, uh, presidents and the rest of us um, went along. Yeah? What is, meaning, what is meaningful about Madison's presidency other than the War of 1812? And what about the election of 1816? Um, well, first of all, we'll back up because um, at this point, there was a sense of the Virginia dynasty and a very hierarchical approach to the presidency. And Madison and Monroe, who were good friends and neighbors, had a falling out in 1808. Um, Madison was Secretary of State. He assumed he was Jefferson's choice. He would be the next president. Monroe wanted to sort of leapfrog all of that. And um, they, you know, there was this falling out for a while. Uh, although Monroe became a critical part of the Madison administration. And uh, Monroe was all too willing to accept the hierarchical principle when his turn came around in 1816. Um, but interestingly enough, the, um, 
the caucus, the Congressional caucus, there were not political conventions in those days. What, what happened was you had a one-party state, they, they were Democratic-Republicans, and there were factions within that, and the caucus met. In effect, the members of that party who were serving in Congress would meet as a kind of national political convention. And there was actually a, a contest in 1816 um, and it, it spelled the end of the caucus, and it gave rise to political conventions later on. So um, Monroe was virtually unopposed. Um, the old Federalist Party was uh, on its death throes, um, and um, they nominated a man named Rufus King, uh, who was a New Yorker, distinguished, uh, revolutionary-era statesman like Monroe, um, and uh, but he won something like 47 electoral votes, one of few states in the North, but overwhelmingly uh, Monroe was, uh, was elected. And then, of course, four years later, uh, virtually uh, unanimous. Um, the Madison presidency, aside from the War of 1812, um, is, um, <laughs> what is it notable for? Um, the institutionalization, really, of, uh, of um, Jefferson's approach. Madison was, in many ways, faithful to his strict constructionist policies. For example, he vetoed, there was beginning to be um, a, a large number of Americans, particularly in the West, who wanted the federal government to fund internal improvements. They wanted the federal government to build roads, uh, to build canals, um, to create the infrastructure for the economy to grow. And Madison um, opposed uh, that, consistent again with this with this view. Um, his view was you needed to amend the Constitution to specify that the federal government. Now he got around it. Interestingly enough, even then <laughs> he got around it, as did Monroe. That there was a they decided that there was a distinction between improvements in a state and improvements that were interstate. So he actually uh, split hairs um, and came to accept, again, sort of the pragmatist um, and the nationalist. Um, he came to accept that a road that crossed state lines was something that could be funded uh, with federal support. But um, something that was limited to a state well, it was up to the state and not to the federal government. Madison, by the way, had a very tough re-election uh, in, in, in 1812. Um, had one or two states switched, uh, he actually would have, been, uh, would have been defeated. But he went out of office very popular because the war was over. There was a perception that we'd won. Um, the Battle of New Orleans cast this patriotic glow. Um, and there was a kind of nostalgia. I mean, there, you know, there was a sense that the revolutionary generation of whom Madison you know, and Jefferson were the personification uh, were not going to be with us forever. And um, think, of, you know, think of what they gave us and uh, are we worthy of them? One more. Uh, for those of us who have forgotten American History 101, and maybe our hearing isn't so good, you may have touched upon it, could you quickly review the election process for presidents 
in those early years? And when did the Electoral College get introduced? Well, the Electoral College existed from the beginning. What uh, what didn't exist at the beginning was any real participation by what you and I would call the electorate, by the uh, uh, by voters. Uh, electors, by and large, were selected by state legislat- state legislatures, just as United States senators were. Um, now that began to change um, by the time that we're talking about Madison. Certainly, uh, even even Jefferson. Um, several states, particularly in the North, actually had popular suffrage, so that you had um, a fairly significant number of of white males. In some cases, there were actually property qualifications attached. Um, but there was a growing, there was an expansion during this period of the franchise. And uh, by the 1820s, when uh, Monroe is ready to turn the baton over uh, to Jackson or John Quincy Adams, by then most states, in fact, there are only one or two states, South Carolina was one, um, that in fact uh, most states entrusted the selection of electors to the uh, general electorate. So it wasn't democratic in the sense that you and I would think use that term, uh, since women couldn't vote and uh, obviously slaves were, weren't uh, weren't voting. Um, but it was a, a, a process that was becoming steadily more inclusive, steadily more representative as the 18-teens and 20s went on. You bet. Thank you very much. Real quickly, I have a couple of announcements for you. Uh, One very, very important announcement. Um, Tomorrow's talk uh, at 11 a.m., room has changed. It's not going to be here. It's not going to be in the Regency Room next door. It's going to be over in the Eberhard Center, the building next door. And we've had such a good waiting list that we want to improve the venue. And you can park at the Fulton lot just underneath uh, 131, just across the street from the Everhart Center, tomorrow for the 11 a.m. talk, uh, the odd couple, Hoover and Truman. So we hope you'll be able to come. And if you've been on that waiting list, that now opens up for you. So make sure you see Mandy Bird. Mandy, would you please stand up? And is there anything you want to... seats available, and everyone that's already been on the waiting list has already been added. So there's 64 seats available. Okay, very good. 64 seats available yet for that lecture. The second announcement is just remember that uh, Richard will be back this afternoon at 2 o'clock to uh, give a talk. That's the one that I tricked him with earlier. Calvin, we hardly knew ye. And uh, third, the book signing can begin. It's at the back uh, outside the auditorium. Thank you very much for coming this morning.